we're going to be looking at the topic of expecting too much. And this is talking about maybe expecting too much out of brethren, expecting too much out of the church, and maybe even possibly expecting too much out of the gospel. And um, you kind of hear that, and you may think, well, that's, that's, that's strange. That's almost... Uh, almost an heretical title, but I do think that uh, this concept can be true in many of ways. Uh, for example, uh, we know that in the Bible we can pretty well see that the standard for ourselves, for others, is Christ. And uh, But any of you that has been around for some time can pretty well say, well, there's probably many brethren that don't uh, really, are, that's not their focus. And they have a lot to work to do before they reach that standard. Even ourselves have a lot to work to do before they reach that standard. And we think about, I was thinking about before I got up, thinking about this concept of marriage. Uh, you see in Ephesians 5 the standard for the husbands and wives. And many times, of course, I'm not married, so I can't necessarily speak to this uh, completely, but I'm sure there's many times when the husband and wives don't fulfill their roles, but that's, but that's the goal. And even though they may not fulfill that role, you're still bound to them. And you still need to work as hard as you can to make those things right. And even uh, be realistic about uh, what the situation is and don't get so bogged down in it that uh, you become discouraged and you may think that uh, the situation is hopeless. But before we get into this idea of, of expecting too much, I want to kind of get to go to the flip side of this and, and think of many ways in which we can actually minimize the power of the gospel or, or minimize our expectations for the church. So, for example, we may uh, talk with somebody, be around somebody, and they may say that I'm too sinful to be saved. I'm too wicked. There's no hope for me. And... We ourselves, even as Christians, can, uh, in a different way, really be saying the same things. When we kind of, when we meet somebody and we see how bad they are, we may make a judgment in our mind, even before we even have have a conversation with them, that we may get in our heads, well, they're just there's no hope for them. So what's even the point of me evangelizing to them? There's there's no way they're going to believe the gospel, and. Um, in 1 Timothy 1, in chapters 13, verses 13 through 15, we see Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did ignorantly and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. We can go back to Acts chapter 8. We see uh, Paul, who was then Saul, consenting to Stephen's death. We see in Acts chapter uh, 9 that he was breathing threats and murder, I believe is how it's put, uh, towards the Christians. And before uh, uh, Paul's conversion, Christ tells him that you are persecuting me. Now, I don't know, of course, sin is sin, but in my mind, I don't think you could get any worse than that. Persecuting Jesus himself, persecuting his body, and uh, persecuting other Christians. 
And yet, what Paul is saying here is like, this is what I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And yet, Christ could save him. And so, in verse 15, he says, Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And Paul makes it clear that anybody can be saved. It doesn't matter what your life was, what your past life was. There's enough power in the gospel to save someone and to completely change their lives like we see in Paul. So even with us, with our evangelism, we can't never get into our minds that this person is completely hopeless. Why even bother with them? Because anyone uh, can, be, uh, can be become a Christian. Another one is... You know, I can't quit that sin. I can't overcome that sin. I just, I've I'm become so addicted to this uh, particular thing, or I've been doing this for so long that I just can't break that habit. Well, uh, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2, I think it kind of, Paul really just, just destroys that argument quite simply. He says, certainly not how shall we who had died to sin live any longer in it. If we are a Christian, that old life is done away with. We now walk in newness of life. And those old things, that's no longer a part of us. And Paul is, is saying that we who have died to sin live any longer in it. So, if, so God's not going to ask us to do something that we can't do. Uh, we can overcome that sin with God's help. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Again, it's possible for us to give up all of those things. It takes a lot of work. It's not easy. It's going to require a lot of work on our part, encouragement from the brethren, a lot of prayer, a lot of study as well. But we can give those things up. And also in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verses 14 and 15, Peter writes, As obedient children, not conform yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter sets the standard pretty higher. You be holy in all your conduct, everything that you do. You strive to do that in a way that's pleasing towards God. And another way in which we minimize our expectations of the church or minimize really the power of the scriptures, power of the word is we say we can't be unified in doctrine. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, I don't know how we can have this. And you get a lot of people that say this out in the denomination world and, and sometimes I just kind of sit back and wonder, man, do you ever read the Bible? Because it's so clear in this verse is now plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I know that there are some issues that uh, are in the realm of opinion, but when we talk about these things, when we talk about the doctrine of Christ, if, if, we got a, if we got a problem or, if we, or we're not completely agreed on something, we have to get that right. We cannot in any way agree to disagree on that subject. We always have to be working together towards that unity of the faith, and it is possible. Paul writes pretty plainly, it's possible. He wants the Corinthians to not just uh, maybe believe the same things, but speak the same things, and that there be no divisions among them. Now, we're look at, we have been looking at ways in which we can minimize, uh, the, the, minimize our expectation of others, minimize the power of the gospel. And so 
The flip side of that, if we can minimize those things, we can also expect too much. And we're going to kind of go into that. And one of these is you hear people, I've heard people say before that, you know, wouldn't it be so great to go back to living in the first century? And you know, wouldn't it be so great if it was just us Christians? And, uh, and, and there would be no other denomination, no other, no other uh, religions. And uh, we can kind of get this idea in which we kind of uh, romanticize the past and uh, become unrealistic about what we expect. In many ways, you can, I can read books talking about maybe some of the things that were happening in the, in the 1920s or the 1950s, and people may say, you know, back then people responded to the truth so much more effectively. And... You know, they start talking about the good old days. And maybe that is. Maybe times were a little better uh, then. You know, there were a lot of great things happening in the book of Acts. But in no way, shape, form, or fashion should we get to this point in which, well, you know, because it was better then, the people are just different here. You know, again, we, sh- we shouldn't see our lot in life as being hopeless, that there's no hope for the world, that there's no hope for... Uh, that we can uh, evangelize like those in the book of Acts did or be, be unified like those in the book, book of Acts did. And we have to be careful that our imaginations or how we uh, look at uh, things in the past, that we, that we don't uh, look at those things with rose-colored glasses in which we kind of see the reality of the situation. And even in the book of Acts, uh, we can kind of look at that and say, man, that's, that's pretty great. In, in many ways it is, but living out that faith during that time was uh, pretty difficult. And uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writes, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And the Thessalonians were busy. They were getting after it. You read uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians and we see that they are uh, they were they were uh, busy about the work they were facing, major, major persecutions, and yet they were still still uh, moving forward. And in verse 6 it says, And you became followers of us in the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So again, facing these persecutions, we go back to, you go back to Acts chapter 17 and kind of read uh, what was happening with Paul as he went to Thessalonica. Persecutions he faced, and so very well could be kind of give us a little bit of a snapshot of what they were uh, facing uh, once they accepted the gospel. And uh, we read in chapter 3 and verse 5 that the, it seemed as though those afflictions and persecutions were so great that Paul was worried about their faith. And, uh, of course, we see that they were still holding firm, but you know, I was thinking about that throughout the week, that even in this area, you don't, or even in this country, you don't really hear a lot of people facing major persecutions. You don't hear people saying, man, I'm worried about North Columbus Church of Christ faithfulness because of all the persecution that they're facing. You just don't really hear that. Not at least in this area. Most of the time you're worried about them because they are, they are uh, corrupting or, or twisting the scriptures and uh, really ultimately uh, starting to follow false doctrine. But, you know, here with them is that the, the, their persecution was so great that Paul was concerned about them. And uh, again, 
And this is part of being a Christian. It's hard times, very difficult times. It's not full of great experiences. It requires long hours of study. You've got to work to provide for yourselves and for others. And uh, ridiculed by those in the world. Another example may be that we may think the local church will always support me in truth. And I think even locally we can pretty much see that this is not the case. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says, But if I am delayed, I'll write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. The church is where the truth should, uh, the, the people in church should know the truth, they should apply the truth, but the church does not dictate truth. The church does not come together and decide, uh, well, this is what we're going to serve. This is what God wants us to do. We only receive that from the Word. Now, even though the church should know and apply truth, it does not mean that local churches are always going to reside in the truth. We see that the entire churches can fall away from the truth. Revelation chapter 3, verses uh, 14 and 19. Speaking of, I forget, f- forgot the name of the church, but the, uh, Christ tells them, they're a lukewarm and I will vomit you out of my mouth. There's nothing good said about uh, that church there. And so we have to understand that there are maybe situations in which it very well could be that I may be the only one in a local congregation that is truly striving and standing for truth. And think about that for a minute. If I'm the only one that's, going, that's in the congregation that's willing to stand for the truth, and think of the concern that you have for your brethren, the sadness that you can feel, maybe even some betrayal uh, from other brethren. And uh, it could even get so bad that you could face something like we see in Third John with diatrophies casting, uh, casting out people from the congregation. You may, you may be kicked out. We've seen that happen in the past. Or you may, you may have to leave yourselves. And so we have to understand that even though that may be the case, that no matter how difficult it may be, our personal relationships with our brethren does not trump the truth. In Mark chapter 10 and verses 29 through 31, says, So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, I know this is in a slightly different context. We're talking about uh, families, family relationships, that type of stuff. But again, we are uh, brethren here in the church. And uh, the point is being made here that those things, uh, those things don't trump the truth, that you, that you have to be willing to give those things up if those things come between you and Christ. And it's the same way with even the brethren in our local congregation. If they refuse to stand for truth, you got to do something. you got to do something different. You can't go along uh, with that crowd. We see in a, a situation in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses uh, 16 and 17 in which Paul, he's, it's, there, he, there's a situation in which he is, Everybody who has been with him has forsaken him, and he alone is standing. He says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me, may it not be charged against him. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. 
Notice what he says in verse 17, no matter how bad it got for him, he says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. We have to realize that if the Lord's going to be with us, uh, regardless of how bad the situation gets, no matter, no matter how hopeless it may be, God's going to be with us if we're standing for the truth. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8, says, And the Lord said, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. It's the same uh, concept in the New Testament. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. I put up this point, and I, I was thinking back about uh, in my history, and I was like, man, this, is, this kind of applies to me uh, a lot. And uh, you know, one example uh, we may think uh, we may think about it, how we kind of expect too much out of others is what convinced me to become a Christian will convince others. Now, you may be in a situation where uh, the only thing you got to do is show somebody one or two verses and it clicks. They're like, "Well, you know, I need to be baptized for the remission of sins," and uh, and that kind of flips a light bulb on for them, in which they have that. A change and become a Christian. But we have to also understand that people react differently uh, to truth uh, that is presented. We see ex- Exodus chapter 9 and verse 34 in which uh, Moses speaking of uh, uh, dealing with Pharaoh in which Pharaoh's heart was hardened because of the message. We see in 1 Kings chapter 9 and verses 4 through 5, I'd like to turn to that. Uh, I believe I don't know if y'all got to that or passed that in, um, probably passed that in the 9 o'clock class. But there's an interesting verse here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 as Solomon uh, had, had become a king. In 1 Kings chapter 9 and verses 4 through 5, God tells uh, Solomon, he says, Now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And so God makes this promise to Solomon. He says, If you do right, if you walk according to my commandments, I'm going to establish the throne of your kingdom uh, over Israel forever. And we have to be careful in how I talk about this. Now, generally, at the beginning of his reign, we know Solomon was pretty faithful to God. And we kind of know that as the end of his reign or the older he got, he drifted. He started following after these other gods. But generally, right here in this moment, he's, he's, he's faithful to God. He's a faithful servant of God. And now let's go over to chapter 11 and verse 38. Now, this is as Solomon was turning from the Lord and the kingdom was fixing to be split in two. This is this is God speaking to Jeroboam. It says, Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you, and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. Now thinking back on what the promise that God gave to Solomon, that those are very similar promises. 
given to both of them. And yet, we see Jeroboam that it's pretty well immediately. He's turning from God. Uh, he's setting up the, the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Jeroboam is legendary. You read throughout these books and these kings are described as following after the sins of Jeroboam and you immediately know what that is. And so I just make this point and of course we can apply this in all ways but generally what we see is as when God made those promises we see Solomon generally following God. We see Jeroboam given this uh, promise if he's going to follow if he'd follow God this is what was going to happen for him and we see the response to that. It seems like a total dismissal of those promises. So even those people may be given the exact same things, we can pretty well uh, see that people react differently uh, to those things. People may not even heed uh, what you have given them. Also in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, uh, let's turn there real quick. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23 this was, uh, Paul was in Athens, and uh, it's, it's interesting to me because he, 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 he starts by drawing in their culture. He starts talking about the things of, of their culture, the things that they have already set up, and he uses that to speak to them about the gospel. In verses 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the, Are the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And so he's, he's drawing some, he, he kind of uses their culture to change the conversation to uh, God and uh, the gospel. And, uh, and for us, I think we can learn a little bit from that is we can kind of see, kind of understand uh, somebody's perspective, somebody's culture, and, and maybe possible to kind of use that uh, in our advantage in, uh, in evangelizing to them. But what we can understand is people can react differently to the truth and uh, we could even uh, use different methods in our evangelizing. We see in Jude in verses 22 and 23 that uh, people, you may have to treat people differently and even uh, Christians and how you uh, even during an area in which they have are in sin and you may have to uh, treat them differently. It says, and on some have compassion making a distinction but others say with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating giving the garment defiled by the flesh. So differences in how you handle uh, that person in that situation. Next point, uh, the Holy Spirit will directly show, and I'm talking about kind of maybe supernaturally, if that's the right word, me what I need, show me what I need to do. And, of course, we think about the apostolics, we think about the Pentecostals, they claim that they have spiritual gifts in which they can prophesy, speak in tongues, so on and so forth. But even others may, uh, within other denominations that won't hold to that, they will say things, well, this Holy Spirit led me to do this, or I feel the Holy Spirit calling me to do this. Now, I think pretty well, the Holy Spirit may be leading you to do that, but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but not, not in the way in which they may believe in which it is a, some supernatural or some direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. And uh, 
you know, contrary to, you know, what many popular teachers may speak, we don't receive these uh, special gifts from the Spirit as some did during the, New during the New Testament. We see in Luke 24 and verses 49 that the apostles, they were told to tarry in Jerusalem and they were going to be endued with power from on high. Uh, we can look at John chapter 14 and verse 26 again talking about the Spirit was going to lead the apostles into remembrance of all the things which Jesus had said and that they were going to be, uh, they were going to be baptized with the Spirit uh, soon. And in Acts chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, we see them being baptized by the Spirit. Now, it's interesting, uh, occurrence happens in Acts chapter 8. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. And we're kind of going through this pretty quickly. If anyone wants to talk about this more deeply later on, be glad to talk about it. But uh, we see the apostles being baptized by the Spirit. They having the ability to prophesy, the ability to speak in tongues. And in Acts chapter 8, we have a situation in which Philip was down in Samaria preaching to other Christians. And um, in verse 14, we see that Peter and John is sent to the, those Christians in Samaria. And in verse 15, it says, Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so we see a situation in which these Christians had not received the Spirit. They have not received the Holy Spirit, and they received that when the apostles laid hands on them. And of course, we can see that later on, uh, kind of spelled out in 1 Corinthians, in which after they had had those hands laid on them, they could prophesy, they could speak in tongues as well. But we don't see, other than Cornelius, which we can kind of, we can deem pretty quickly that it was a sign, we don't see uh, just normal, everyday Christians being baptized with the Spirit in this situation. The only way that they could receive this power was by the apostles laying their hands on them. And once those apostles have gone, then that ability to transfer that power has gone away, and that ability to speak in tongues, prophesy, having those gifts go away after that. And, uh, and like I said, we can, you know, we do know that the Holy Spirit leads us to truth. We see in John chapter 17 and verse 17 that Jesus prays to uh, God to sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. And remember going back to John chapter 14 and verse 26, the Spirit was allowing the apostles to remember the things that Jesus had said, that they were able to speak those things, write those things down. And so we know indirectly through the Spirit because it was given uh, through the apostles what the Spirit wants us to do, what God wants us to do. And the Holy Spirit does lead us to truth, but He does so uh, through the Word. And so again, the Holy Spirit does show us what it's needed to do, but not so in a manner in which we may hear many people talking about it out in the world. Our next point and our last point is that temptations will cease when once I become a Christian. And uh, I think many of you probably already know where this is going. Uh, but we've already talked before that with God's help, 
uh, a Christian can overcome, uh, overcome sin. We see that in Romans chapter 6. We see 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6 that you know those that are uh, that are Christians they don't abide in sin they don't continuously sin and so uh, and so moving on we see that even Jesus himself was tempted in Mark chapter 1 and verse 13 says and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him so he's being tempted by Satan here Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in all points tempted as we are. So if Jesus faced the temptation, it's probably pretty, uh, pretty apparent that we are probably going to be tempted as well. And that's what the scriptures speak of. Uh, James chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and his ties. So James makes it pretty apparent. He kind of is already understood that you're going to be tempted. But notice what when we are tempted, it's because of our own desires. We're being enticed by our own desires. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear. Now, this is something we have to understand. Again, this is not easy. This is, may take a lot of work on our part to, uh, to uh, get rid of that uh, one particular sin in our lives. But regardless of how strong that temptation is, there's always going to be a way to not fall into that. That there's, there's not going to be a way in which we're just kind of pushed into a corner and we have no other, uh, no other way but to uh, give in to that sin. God is always going to give us a way in which we can escape those things. And we have to really believe that. There's got to be some uh, uh, will on our part to give up that sin. We have to be willing to give, do whatever is necessary. But we also, even if we are tempted, we have to understand there's always going to be escape and we have to be willing to take that escape. I think many times the problem is, is we're tempted by something that we kind of like it. We kind of like this kind of pleasure before us. When we can not, uh, we can uh, uh, resist those things, we can get away from it, but the problem is we really don't want to get away from it. And so uh, that's what we have to change our will, change our heart to really, uh, really want to get rid of those sins in our lives. And so that's the end of my lesson. I hope y'all maybe learned something from it, maybe think about those things. But, you know, many ways we can, uh, like I said, expect too much or even non-Christians can expect too much about what it means to be Christian in the sense of once I become a Christian that it just becomes perfect. It, it becomes all rainbows and unicorns. And that's uh, simply not the case. That there is a, uh, it's not, uh, a lot easier uh, uh, said about these things and uh, a lot easier to talk about being Christian than it's actually applying uh, what we have been commanded to do. But there's a great reward for that. And uh, if anyone of you are here and uh, want to talk about how to become a Christian, want uh, the prayers of the saints, some of you may have been, uh, uh, may have fallen into some type of sin that you're struggling with. 
uh, we certainly like to talk with, those, with you about those things. As we stand, as we sing, will you come?